Welcome to Sliding Doors, the podcast that delves into the decisions and moments that shape our lives. I am Jenny Becker, and throughout my life, career and relationships, I've always been fascinated with the notion that everything happens for a reason, alongside my love for the 90s movie classic, Sliding Doors. Have you ever really thought about those moments that shaped your life? Those decisions that could have gone either way in the opportunities presented to you? What if you had taken that job? or told that person in high school how much you liked them. Each episode, I will talk to some amazing people from all walks of life and chat about their sliding doors moments. We will reflect on how a decisional moment changed the course of their lives and how things might have looked if they had never happened. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. My guest today is Lorraine Candy. Lorraine is an award-winning journalist, author, podcast host, and mother of four. Formerly editor-in-chief of the Sunday Times style, Elle and Cosmopolitan, she also has over a decade of experience writing about parenting in national newspapers and magazines. Lorraine is also co-host of the chart-topping lifestyle podcast, Postcards from Midlife which features stories of spirited midlife women and tackles parenting adolescents. If that wasn't enough, she's also just released her first book, Mum, What's Wrong With You? 101 Things Only Mothers of Teenage Girls Know, which is frank, funny and a reassuring guide to the challenges of mothering teenage girls, with some rave reviews already under its belt. Originally from Cornwall, Lorraine is a keen open water swimmer and dog lover and is now focusing full time on writing. With such a successful career and so much more to come, I couldn't be more excited to chat to her today and find out all about her sliding doors moments. Welcome to the podcast, Lorraine. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really pleased to be here. Yeah, well, it's it's so nice to finally meet you. You've actually featured on the podcast before uh, with my lovely friend, Hannah Swirling. Um, there's kind of a big quote, which she says, where you said, follow me, Hannah Swirling. That's a big part of her life. So it's really nice to kind of <laughs> finally see you face to face. And I've grown up hearing so much about you and what an inspirational lead you are. So um, it's great to have you on. Oh, thank you. So kind of looking into where you've come from and what you've done, um, I actually found out that you you actually left education quite early on um, yes. to go and just work for a newspaper. Yeah, I think um, I think I was just incredibly lucky to absolutely know what I wanted 
to do and I wanted to be a journalist and you know I, I hoped I might make it to edit a magazine at some point um so I knew and I think because I knew and I wasn't particularly academic when I got uh, the chance to I wrote to our my local newspaper in Cornwall and said can I do some interning for you over the summer before I start my A-levels um and my careers teacher at the time had told me I was I really wasn't going to <laughs> wasn't gonna yeah. be a stellar student forever uh-huh. um so he so I got I got the internship and I just completely loved it and at the end the editor said would you like to stay on we'll give you a job we can't put you on the apprenticeship scheme because they weren't part of the apprenticeship scheme at the time it was yeah. a shame um and I knew I'd have to come to London at that point to get a proper training and um, to get all the journalist qualifications. So I stayed on and just left school and, and stayed on and just really loved working on a local paper. I just loved the fact that I could hold a pass up and be allowed to you know, be so curious about people and, and get into every room that I wanted to get into to see what yeah. was going on. It was just I just really, really enjoyed it. I'd, I'd won a short story competition um, mm-hmm. as well for a piece I'd written about one of the local um kind of quite famous town's policeman of the town. So I was sort of, my head was tilted in that direction and I just didn't see any point in going to university. Although I did miss out on that wonderful social time at university, which I think I would have loved. And I don't, you know, I'd have loved to live, but I would have come to a London university anyway. So um, and all got tried to go abroad, maybe, but it was just—it was just so lovely to get a kind of set of circumstances, mm-hmm. fate-like circumstances. Yeah, there happened to be a job. I happened to be quite good at it, and I was obviously very cheap for them as yeah. well. And I think, you know, I had my own transport. I could come and, you know, I had a moped. I was sixteen, and that was great. My parents had saved up to get me that. So I think, you know, just everything kind of came together at the right time. As you know, as your podcast is is about, there are so many sliding doors moments mm-hmm. in life where you benefit from fate in many ways totally and I guess like do you think having the experience of that smaller local as you say going everywhere really kind of put you in good stead when you did originally like eventually move to London if you spell someone's name wrong on a local newspaper you can't really leave the house or appear everybody knows everybody everyone yeah and if you spell the name wrong then anything else you do is rubbish because mm-hmm. you couldn't even get the name right. And I think yeah. I learned really early on detail, detail, detail. Yeah. <laughs> and that's such a good thing to learn. I just was also so lucky to be always surrounded by incredibly uh, reassuring and supportive mm-hmm. people. I had an amazing news editor on the Wimbledon News who was just phenomenal. I had yeah. a phenomenal editor on the Cornish Times when I John joined, John Collins. So everywhere I went, there were these amazingly experienced people who shared their experience um, with me. And, you know, they were pretty brutal about it. You had to deliver or, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's no sort of niceties. <laughs> I mean, my news editor at the Women's News was always shouting at me. So I think nowadays he'd probably be fired under yeah. some kind of nature. But I really, I went out and I came back and I never presented a story with any spelling mistakes in it, mm-hmm. any facts wrong. Or, you know, I just, I really learned quite hard, fast, really. Yeah. And you learn your trade on the job as opposed to in university, which is is like an, a brilliant way to do life. It's just different. Um, and then I guess, I mean, I know you best from being editor in chief at Elle. I feel like you were yeah. really at the magazine during its heyday. Um, what was your highlight in that role? I mean, you did so, so much, but what kind of really stands out to you as a highlight of that part of your career? I loved editing Elle. I was there for 12 years. I came from editing Cosmopolitan to Elle and it was a bit of a shock for everybody because I hadn't come from 
what they would see as a pure fashion magazine. I'd come from a very commercial, I'd come from the biggest selling magazine at the time. And the reason I went to Elle is for the fashion, because I just could see that it was possible to do this amazing thing with the fashion industry and also be able to put stories in that were kind of spirited. And, you know, Elle was a very campaigning magazine, but it was very cool as well. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, the spirit of an Elle woman is just joyful. You know, she really does love clothes but she loves in the context of her life she's a very curious woman she wants to know what's happening next she wants to be everywhere she wants to know stuff before it happens Um, and I think I don't I think we just had an absolutely brilliant time we did some pretty good pieces we tackled every subject under the sun because the context is you can love fashion and beauty and still want to read about what's going on in the rest of the world and celebrities I think the highlight for me was probably um going to the United Nations with Emma Watson uh, when they launched the global he for she campaign um, she was the cover of our first feminism issue I think it was 2014 mm-hmm. 24 2016 maybe and I went and I, I met some amazing women um, which was just extraordinary and we we ran the cover we ran a campaign with school we did a really big overall thing that lasted quite a long time and I think the birthday issues of Elle will stay with me the yeah. 21st so I, I managed to get Carl Lagerfeld to do a t-shirt for comic relief um and it was their highest selling t-shirt ever so um and he'd never done a charity t-shirt before yeah amazing (laughs) Um, persuaded Kira Knightley to be on it and wear it so it was just we had I think we were in we created moments and yeah when we did our feminism campaign we created a little film where we took the women um the men out of all the big powerful places in the world you know the UN um, Europe all of that and every time we took them there'd be like one woman left and it went viral it had millions of views and we were on the news in New York talking about it it was was properly (laughs) when someone says something's gone viral it did go it literally went viral it was just we were I worked with Alexandra Holder um, at the mother agency Um, she's now author herself but we wanted to show how we just simply, you know, you can't change things if you're not in the corridors of power. And there were no women in the corridors of power. Yeah. There were a handful. Um, it's much better now. It's incredible. And it's incredible to know that you were part of that kind of change. Um, what was that, I guess, like the craziest thing that ever happened to you? Like, you know, I'm sure there, I mean, I know that from working in fashion, some really ridiculous stuff happens. What would you say well, is your craziest moment? Well, you know, the, you know, the. I mean, I think the covers and the catwalk shows probably, you know, I remember sort of we went to try and we were due to go to an event, to see Amy Whitehouse sing. And we were a little bit late because the show had run over and we ran, we had to run through the kitchen of this huge, I think it was in Paris of the Ritz. I think it might have been in Paris and just all those amazing moments. I saw Prince sing um, Amazing. at the Matthew Williamson show. It was a yeah. complete surprise. And then he had a private gig afterwards. Um, Dolce & Gabbana had a birthday party. And when we turned around, Dinah Ross was on the stage. I mean, it was I mean, just, you know, yeah. we'd, we had some incredible... Oh, I think it was Dinah Ross in um, Dior, actually, in Marrakesh. It was, we had some incredible moments where just we saw amazing things and we yeah. were really privileged to be in in those places and you know when you're in that world those crazy things seem normal and it's only when you kind of reflect back and as you say mm-hmm. like you turn around and princess there or Dinah Ross you're like wow it was amazing um and I guess you've you've gone like into the podcast world as well your podcast is brilliant um and I think you know a lot of women are kind of coming into their prime in midlife at the moment you know are becoming successful in their 40s and I think it's such a relevant audience that kind of has probably previously been overlooked what sparked you to start the podcast 
Well, I, I do it with Trish Halpern, who, you know, so Trish has edited Red, Marie Claire in style, and I've edited um, Elle, Style, um, Cosmo. So sort of between us, we've edited more A or lot. less every magazine on the newsstand. So <laughs> yes. our audience is now the same age as us. So mm-hmm. the readers that were buying our magazines, who know us pretty well now at this point, and we had realised that audio was going to be where everyone was going, mm-hmm. because it's a brilliant way of storytelling and controlling your own story and then we realized that we did some research we thought we'd set up a podcast we did some research on which guests would we have which women would we have and have they talked about perimenopause menopause Mm -hmm. or even midlife and all the guests that we wanted sort of former cover stars we just kept saying but they've never talked about this and then we realized of course they haven't talked about it no one's ever asked them about it yeah no one asked anything of women after 40 about their life. We're sort of invisible. Mm-hmm. And we were also at the same time experiencing our own perimenopause symptoms. I had a kind of complete unraveling, which was a real surprise to me. Yeah. I mean, I really thought I, that I had Alzheimer's or that I had perhaps a tumour or I was going properly mad. And so did Trish. And actually, all we needed was uh, hormone replacement therapy. Yeah. Um, because the symptoms, there are over 45 symptoms of the perimenopause that affect every, oestrogen is in every single part of your body mm-hmm. and when it disappears it affects every single part of yeah. your body and we then realized the medical profession weren't really taking women seriously over 40 and we did a lot of research and we discovered not only were they not taking women seriously it was an absolute scandal they were just yeah. prescribing antidepressants because there was a survey called the million women survey 20 years ago which was a flawed survey of hrt that is not used anymore on women over 65 mm-hmm. and that survey has been used as a reference to prescribe HRT to women in this all over the world and it was wrong it was inaccurate and it was wrong so it said that there were risks that do not there are not risks um in the way that it described them so we we just set out to put the facts out there you know and we went to the top to get people to talk about it but you know the podcast is fairly light-hearted it's not a medical podcast we just talk about magnificent midlife um and it's a magazine format it's got you know beauty and fashion and all sorts of and waffle as well quite a lot of waffle between me and Trish well no it's great to have waffle and also you make such a good point because you know that's what's so great about podcasting and about audio and about kind of something that feels authentic to you is is you can really bring the message out and actually as you say keeping that thought always in the back of your mind of why you're doing this and what you're trying to get across I think often as women sometimes we just want to know that someone else is going through the same thing and we're not alone and then we kind of kind of pull together so I absolutely love it I think it's brilliant for all ages because I think we all need to be aware of things whatever age we are um and then I guess now you're also an author if that if that wasn't enough already um so I kind of wanted to ask how does being an author feel different to kind of editing and writing in columns is it a different feeling do you feel different being an author I think it's really hard writing a book which I just thought hold on a minute this will be fine I can knock out 2,000 word cover stories I write about four pieces a week easy Um, peasy easy peasy it's not it's it's just it you give it your heart and soul Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it becomes a kind of living breathing thing and it's you know there's a lot of journalism in my book because it's I interviewed a lot of experts so there's a lot of interviews there's a then there's a person you know it's a memoir as well and piecing that all together in a way that you want to read and just getting the chronicle you know the order right the timeline right of how you want to make it work it was really hard and halfway through I was we were also in the middle of the pandemic and 
I left style to I just there was no way I could do all of this together together, it was right for me to move on because this is a different kind of you know print is in a very different place and I really wanted the podcast had you know we'd had these extraordinary numbers and we'd kept going to the top of the charts for the kids and it was doing really well and it's really time consuming a podcast but actually the book was more time consuming so I was getting up and sort of 5 a.m every morning because in in the pandemic obviously the children were all home and I've got four so it was really noisy so I was having to get up before everyone else (laughs) everything else that you do you also have four children which is incredible (laughs) so I got up did my thing and it just feels like you know it was a real labor of love it was sort of seven days a week um just getting it right rewriting it rewriting it editing it rewriting it and I was so pleased to finish. I had an amazing team at Fourth Estate who were incredibly patient um, with me and very good. At, the edit was 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 good. Was a really good edit, I think. Yeah. Um, and we worked really closely on it. And then obviously they had this kind of, you know, they had to deal with the fact that I've done quite a lot of book extracts and I've interviewed a lot of authors. And so I was, and I'm all over it when it comes to visually. Yeah, what I was going to say you're like the one that shouldn't look. Like. The spelling has to be correct in every single thing. <laughs> yes. So people were quite cross with me. <laughs> Um, but I think it's quite, you know, I, it's, I, let's see how it goes. I just didn't want any mums to be kind of sat at the bottom of their stairs thinking I'm a rubbish human, I'm a rubbish mum, yeah. I just can't deal with this. And it, there's so many ordinary small things you can do to just ease the pressure with teenagers that mm-hmm. I just wanted to, to make sure that that was out there so everyone could cope um, yeah. and it would be helpful to all of those women. Um, it's not for you know. It's not a book for people going through extreme teenage adolescent mental health crises. It's it's a book for every ordinary mum who just wants to try a few things and see what what it should be comforting and reassuring. So before we go on to talking about your sliding doors moments, I wanted to ask you: Are you are you a fan of the film? Like, what are you a believer in the sliding doors concept? Kind of luck <laughs> versus hard work. What what's kind of your take on it all? Well, I love Gwyneth Paltrow, obviously. Oh, yes. <laughs> We all do. I mean, I don't agree with everything she says, obviously, but um, I do think she was a great actress. Um, and uh, my concept is you, it, you, if you work really hard, if you want to work really hard, I'm not saying mm-hmm. everyone has to, yeah. and you're tilted in the direction of the thing you want most in life, the sliding doors moments do present themselves to yeah. you, I think. And it's a little bit luck and a little bit fate. Um, but I think if you're there, you will be in a place where it's going to happen because you'll have already be heading towards that subconsciously mm-hmm. or consciously. So I'm a great believer in that. But, you know, in saying that, I have had m- those moments when it just looks entirely like fate. Yeah. <laughs> has happened here. <laughs> and who who would have thought? that in a way I do believe in the concept there but I think if you tilt in the right direction you're going to get yourself into a position where that's going to happen anyway definitely and I think that leads a lot very well into your sliding doors moments so Lorraine wrote her moments so detailed and beautifully you can definitely tell she's a writer I know it's great and they've actually got little titles which I love even more um so your first one is um all about the Hillsborough tragedy so you say that your first um front page byline in a national newspaper the Sunday Mirror um was kind of from writing a story about this and it was really kind of the start of your career. The family that you interviewed had kind of turned away all other journalists but wanted to speak to you. And you say this is kind of one of the most poignant moments of your career. So it must have been such a hard thing to report on, but do you want to explain kind of why this was such a kind of moment for you? 
Well, it was 1989 and I was just 20, I think. Um, and I was working on, I'd given up, I'd done my apprenticeship, given up my job, gone freelance um, and was working on a national newspapers wherever I would be taken to do shifts. And I was on the Sunday Mirror Features team at the time. And the Hillsborough disaster happened and Trevor and Jenny Hicks had lost their two teenage daughters. And I was sent to ask whether they would talk about the, what had happened, um, mm -hmm. because obviously it's a hugely controversial um, incident. And it's still, I still think now is really tearing families apart and yeah. there's been no proper resolution for them. And I think families have been treated so appallingly. And when I went to knock on the door, Trevor and Jenny had turned everyone away, but they let me in to talk to them about their daughters. And I think the sliding doors moment really was that they wanted to talk to a young woman yeah. um, because they'd lost their two most important young women in their life. And I think that moment was pivotal for me and maybe helpful, I hope for them. And because I was very young and I, I wasn't hardened like most news journalists, you know, yeah. it wasn't just another story to me. It was, you know, I remember going home and sort of crying for hours mm -hmm. because they were so lovely. And I just thought, God, they, what they've been through is so awful. Um, and actually, we stayed friends quite a long time really? afterwards. Um, but I just felt that, in a way, I was going to treat their story very sensitively because I hope I treated it sensitively and they felt that because I was so young myself and only just out of my teenage. Mm -hmm. um, and in, in another way, I had a story that I really deeply understood. So, it, you know, it was going to be, it was a big story to have at the time yeah. and... Um, they were incredibly trusting. They gave me all the pictures of their girls, which really? I then took back and, you know, had lunch with them. And I did. I stayed in touch because I think I feel they probably thought she's so young in London, on, yeah, <laughs> you know, on her own. And I think they felt very paternal and maternal around me. Yeah. So it was a sort of, you know, that for that to be my first story was quite a sliding door. You know, I could easily have said, I don't, I can't do this. I'm not yeah. experienced enough. Like, or I could easily have just not carried it through and stayed with it and and made it work so I think yeah it's that was quite a sliding doors moment for me yeah and I guess there's a few things because I I, th I think you also said that you'd you left the Wimbledon news to freelance which again must have been kind of like a bit of a big decision for you so it's also about the fact that you're in the right place at the right time to even be yes. put up to interview yes. them Yes. And also, you know, I still I had to pay, you know, my parents aren't wealthy. I had to pay rent. So it was a massive leap to leave a paid job. Yeah. Um, but I kind of thought it was worth the risk and I'd have to just go back to Cornwall if it didn't work out. Yeah. That would be the thing. But yes, I happened to be at that moment to, you know, and also the Wimbledon News was was a, such, such a good newspaper. Yeah. Um, it was a feeder paper for the national papers. So um you know, I could have come to London and gone gone on any paper. You know, I wrote hundreds of letters all around the country to go on yeah. um, papers that did the NCTJ training scheme, but I happened to get the Wimbledon News. So, you know, again, sort of luck, I suppose. Yeah, no, definitely. And and you kind of touched on this before, but, you know, after interviewing them, did, did were you nervous of writing the article? Like how, as you say, like it, it, you have to do the interview, but then you have to do the story justice for it to actually be able to kind of be published and be out there. Young journalists... You just write it. Yeah. You don't have this kind of what's everyone going to think? Should I, how should I structure it? What should I do? You have very much in your mind, I'm just going to write the story. You're not, mm -hmm. you, you don't have that weight of, 
years of pressure. I think even now totally. when I do a cover, I, I interviewed Margaret Atwood for the um, her second, you know, I was one of the first journalists in the world to read the book and I interviewed her for Style recently. And I, I just remember thinking, I wish I was a beginner yeah. journalist for this. I wish I no put, one knew I've who I was so, and I could just write I've it I've overthought this. Yeah. <laughs> I've really overthought it greatly. Yeah. And actually, I think at, at the beginning of your career, you don't overthink things, you just do them. And so I wasn't nervous. I just thought I'm just going to tell their story in a way that works for Sunday Mirror readers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was kind of once, also once you get a front page byline at that age, at 20, you become, people notice that you're there and you're you're around and then I started to get obviously you know I got a job for I think it was at the Sunday Mirror for about eight or nine months after well, that. yeah because I was about to say like how did having that front page change your life because obviously that's a part of the moment is that like you know if you hadn't have written that story it had gone on the front page. like what unraveled after that that kind of helped you in your career yeah got a job on the Daily Mirror which is one of my happiest times again I was so fortunate to have such an amazing editor Richard Stock was the editor then um it really aligned with my own personal politics and mm-hmm. it was just I just managed to sit also on by accident on the specialist desk so I sat with the health reporter and then um, a man called Alistair Campbell came and sat next to me and I sat next to Alistair Campbell for four years and if you want to learn journalism you've got to yeah. learn it from one of the big beasts of journalism I mean mm-hmm. he was the best so in the business so and he taught me you know he would I would say look is this any good can you what, what do you think and he would be very this is you've done this you've got to do this you've got to do that so he I learned a lot about writing from him yeah and also he was incredibly I also sat the other side of me was their chief feature writer Noreen Taylor so wow. um, I learned a lot from Noreen yeah <laughs> I mean she was very grand and I would have to really brace myself to ask for her opinion on things but I was sat between these two amazing journalists and I don't think you get better training than that yeah. really um just by fate of that was the only place mm-hmm. to sit that day and I just sort of stayed there and they were comfortable with it so it was fine so yeah I I, you know it then set off that I was incredibly happy to work with Mary Riddell who's a a politics writer big opinion columnist and I just was I just landed in a place where you know journalism was doing incredibly things and the Daily Mirror was doing incredible things so Mm -hmm. I I felt very privileged to, to be there and I was quite kind of incredibly lucky and I just absorbed it all like a sponge but that's kind of that relays back to what you were saying about your take on, you know, fate and sliding doors, like with all of these that like you could have easily, you know, you took every opportunity. Yeah, sat anywhere else, been like, sorry, I don't want to do this story. It's too big for me. Like, I'm not qualified enough. And you and and that's, you know, it's a really brilliant message to be like, that's how success can be built is just taking all opportunities and those every sliding doors moment and kind of taking yeah. it and running with it. And you never know where it can lead. Well, I think also and I often say this when I talk to young journalists and young women in the industry now I didn't take anything personally Mm -hmm. so either of those people could have said we don't want this trainee sat next to us or you know and they were just getting on with their day I didn't spend I didn't look for approval anywhere I just got on with my job and I think if you don't take anything personally it's just easier to do things and I I meet a lot of young women who worry a a lot about what people think of them and I think you just in the end have got to just sit knuckle down and get on with it. That's such brilliant advice. Um... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. So going on to your second moment, which I'm really excited to chat about because I feel like this is a proper fate moment. So um, this is entitled The Lake Geneva Swim. So you wrote oh. a piece about learning to swim um, front crawl so you could one day conquer the 70 um km lake um geneva swim and a lady called kate read the article and she was really the catalyst for you being a part of one of the only teams that have actually ever swam it and you kind of say if she'd not read the article you'd have never had one of kind of your most amazing life experiences so you can probably explain the story a lot better than i can but i feel like it's a true slang doors moment if one thing hadn't have happened something else wouldn't have yeah, I mean, it does sound ridiculous, so I'm going to put it in context. <laughs> yes, do. Please do. <laughs> I have done some ridiculous things. So Lake Geneva 70 kilometres, which is the twice the um, distance of the channel. It's like swimming to the channel and back, basically. So when I was having my midlife unravelling, aged 47 or 48, I think, yeah. um, before I found the right HRT, I started to change my lifestyle and try and get fitter because I found that exercise really reset my mind. So I wanted to do some more swimming as I learned to do the front crawl I couldn't really do it up until then and I, and I just the moment I was in a lake I thought why have I not been here this is literally my happy place I love it so much now I am a very slow swimmer okay um, and then I met a group of women that I was doing generally swimming a bit with and we were all mums from the playground basically mm-hmm. um, and we were enjoying our little lake swims and Kate or Katie or who's a mum of five Wow. So we had that in common. I'd written a piece in the Sunday Times magazine to say it, we were all writing about our dreams. Um, that My dream, having just learned to swim, was to go big, to yeah. do the biggest swim I possibly could. Um, just I didn't just want a little challenge. With the channel or yeah. <laughs> I would go big. But you do, it, and you do it in a relay, so you don't do it in a while. I was okay. doing it every fifth swim, so Fine. there were six of us doing it. So Katie read it, and she happened to say to her friend Rupert, uh who they swam with him at the Lido. I love this piece. And on the the day she read it, New Year's Day, she mm-hmm. booked the spot at Geneva, which is phenomenally, usually it's a two-year waiting list, difficult to book. You have to raise quite a bit of money. You have to yeah. hire a boat. It's a really complicated logistics situation. But she was good at logistics. So she booked the slot for a team of six <laughs> and then Amazing. thought, I better put a team together. She spoke to her friend Rupert, who she swam with at the Lido in Parliament Hill, and he said, well, I know Lorraine really well. He's Rupert Sanderson, who's a shoe yeah. designer. <laughs> and he said, I'll give her a call and see if she wants to do it. So he gave me a call. Kate and I met for a swim. And then we thought, now we just got to find four other people. And then Dan uh, from Swim for Try, who'd been teaching me to swim, said, well, I'd love to swim in Lake Geneva, but I've never managed to get a slot. Oh, my God, this is amazing. So he said, <laughs> I'll come with you. So that sped our time up considerably. Yeah. Um, and then my mum friend, Deeper, who we've got two kids who are exactly the same age in the same year. So uh, two of our children. So we, she said, oh, well, I'll learn front crawl as well, if you like. <laughs> So she learned from amazing. Um, and then my friend Lisa Potter Dixon, who's an amazing makeup artist, said, who's quite young, she said, Oh, I can do front crawl. Um, I'd like something to train for. We just didn't really know what we were letting yeah, ourselves. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like, yeah. it was, uh, we weren't quite. 
<laughs> equipped for what was going to happen. Not really, no. But we did it. We did it and we did it in a really Amazing. respectable time. And we had, I mean, I think for me, I was doing the the last night swim. So I got in in the dark. Um, and as I swam, the sun rose over the Alps behind wow. me. And I could see the sun rising over the Alps as I was swimming. And Lake Geneva is beautiful, beautiful water. There's, there are so few swims because they're so protective of what's in the water on Geneva. Yeah. So there's only a certain number of boats that can be in it at any one time. So I just think you have sometimes fate coincides to put all the right people together. And also we just got on so well. We had all had totally different skills. You know, somebody did logistics, somebody did the money. I did the fundraising and the public publicity and, and yeah. got us enough press to get some sponsorship so it was you know we all had to work beyond our call of duty and these women are probably among the closest friends I've got now we spend yeah. a lot of time together just in lakes freezing I know I mean I've just started having cold showers actually and I the power of just like it's fresh well not as fresh but cold what's so good for you but you bring up a brilliant point which I'm fascinated by because we can all do things and do experiences, but it's actually about who do you do those experiences with? So you're right, yeah. it's all about the timing. You know, you could have swum that with different people and had a different experience, but the fact that you all kind of came together through that, you know, you wrote that article, she saw it, just booked, because do you think you would have kind of, do you think you would have actually booked to do the swim if you hadn't have had Not the that push soon. from I Kate? Bet I couldn't really, <laughs> I couldn't swim for more than 30 minutes nonstop at that point. And oh I was thinking gosh. maybe in a couple of years when I'd yeah. got my technique right. I mean, we had to pull our fingers up. We trained, we didn't do it as a competitive thing. So we weren't doing it for a time. We weren't doing it to beat anyone and we weren't doing it to go in a records book or anything like that. We were doing it for the community of it. And yeah. To give experience. us something out of our life that would we could draw on and learn from and bring back into our life. A lot of people, particularly in the triathlon community, said that you'll never do it. There's no really? way you lot will do it. You won't even get cold water acclimatized. You just won't be able Amazing. to do it. And we did do it. We were so intent. In fact, the woman who adjudicated, uh, we had to have an adjudicator on the boat with us checking our times in and out and cross-reffing. As soon as we got on and after the um first person as one said to us you won't make this there's no way you'll make this which obviously we were like we will no that's what I mean it, the, the will, negativity yeah, can spare will. you on a lot more <laughs> yeah I know so we um I mean she was unforgivable to say that to us actually um right at the beginning but you know yeah. we did make it um but you know we made it because we were clever and took Dan with us because his swim speed was twice our swim speed and we knew that but once you've set the rotor, you can't change it. You couldn't, you know, we had to keep going in the same order and we had to keep coming in and out in the same order. And unfortunately, we got the night, We Dan didn't get the night swim, unfortunately, we got the night, which is a terrifying thing to do, to get yeah. in the water in I pitch black. And it's much colder, much colder at night than it is in yeah. the day. It's cold anyway, and it's, and it's a tidal lake, so there's quite, it's not flat. Yeah. So, you know, we really had to dig deep to do that. But without each other, because of the bond we'd formed by that point, I don't think we would have, we were the right group of women yeah. together to do it. And that, you know, the bond was so strong when there was a kind of wobble, there was always someone on the boat, spot what they call spotting, you know, encouraging us. But we did it in such, we knew what that person in the water needed to be um, encouraged to keep going. So, yeah. um, and we did it and we, oh. we, we, would love to do it again but um I just the training was you know we yeah, were swimming was 10 say, kilometers a week so. wow what an achievement I mean was there ever, were you ever was there ever a time when you were like I'm just not sure if I can do this or was it kind of as you say yeah the right group of people that you all really just spurred each other on to be like we'll I do think it together 
there was we had to do a qualifying swim where we had to stay in the water for two hours and swim uh, it was under 15 degrees so it was cold wow. and then the day we chose to do it was pouring with rain unfortunately and ha- about a third of the way through that I just thought well, I don't know what this is terrible I, I can't do it um, and Lisa had brought her swim friends to Shepparton Lake where we were doing the swim and she uh, she could see I was struggling and within seconds there were sort of three women swimming beside me yeah. <laughs> saying you can do Come it you on, can do it amazing. and it's just a, my, everything about any kind of sporting thing you know and I've interviewed some of great Olympians as well mm-hmm. everything you can be technically brilliant and that's all fine but if you don't have the mental capacity you're not you're just not going to do it even if you're the fastest person in the world that's yeah. what marks you out as the difference of an, an Olympian you know and I do a lot of work with Kerry Ann Payne the Olympic open water swimmer her they call it the steel trap mind you mm-hmm. you just have to put it in a box and, and, and your mind has to be, you have to have a steel trap mind. You just yeah. cannot let the negativity in. Because the moment you let the negativity in, it does affect your body. So you of lose, course. it affects your ability. Yeah, the connection with your mind and body is so strong that we don't realise. I mean, mm. would you say that's, the, what was kind of the biggest takeaway you had from the whole experience? I think the, well, I, it just gave me an incredible life skill that mm-hmm. if I was in a really big meeting or I had to do something extraordinarily nerve-wracking, I'd think back to that moment of getting into the lake in the dark and you kind of think well I did that so this is not really going to be a problem yeah (laughs) and it's like a muscle your your Mm -hmm. resilience is a muscle that you build and and we built that muscle Um, yeah I mean it's such a great moment because it really shows also the power of journalism one person reading one article you know doing something and I love it so much and I love the fact that you're all still friends and I think that you know, I travelled to New Zealand and joined a group of 70-year-old Americans on my own and climbed volcanoes with them and everything. And it's it was the right group of people at the right time and we're still in yeah. touch now. And it's, it's things yeah. in life that really, as you say, bring you back to what life is yeah. about, but also teach you things along the way. And also you, you never think, I can't do that if you want mm-hmm. to do something. I mean, unless you physically can't do it. I mean, I can't go into space because I'm not a trained astronaut, but... Yeah. I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility ever. A hundred percent. I always think it's not. the you know, thing that I might want to do. So yeah. Well, I'm excited think... to see the next swim that you do. We'll see what the next <laughs> one on the horizon is. Um, so your last moment is another trip away somewhere brilliant. So it's Antarctica. So your husband and you um, met and had a combined dream of visiting Antarctica. And within months of meeting, um, you actually managed to go there, which you say was by sheer fluke. And you're now obsessed with Antarctic explorers so you mentioned that you bought a lonely planet guide and you're like so when you met your husband how did you kind of know that you had both had this love for going there well I think it was just a kind of dream that we had I think we'd been together a few years actually not not months so it was a dream we had to go we both like the cold we both like snow and ice um mm-hmm. and I just was had been reading Scott's diaries and there's a book called uh, Sarah Wheeler had written a book called Terra Incognita and it's a, it's about her work on the British Antarctic Survey scientific station there and it was just it was just I just thought the 24-hour sunshine I just it sounded to me like no place that you, you couldn't go and not come away without mm-hmm. learning something or seeing something and you'd have to have this immense fortitude have to have that steel trap mind to if you read about the explorers unfortunately most of them were men because that was because the context of the time only really gave men the chance to do that um, but they had to be so brave and yeah the men that went that were 
going from a kind of geological point of view or from a wildlife point of view who weren't explorers. So when there's a the penguin egg man, absolutely Gerard, I think it's all Gerard. He, he had written this amazing book called The Worst Journey in the World, which was about, you know, just, doing the study around the penguin eggs there. And he was not someone who wanted to go exploring. Or to, yeah. He wasn't a big, you know, brutal show-off. He was someone who just was a very gentle man, fascinated and doing his research and his work. And I, and I just thought that everything I'd read about it sounded amazing. So we put it in, you know, out there with the kind of intention that we would yeah. do that one. You bought a Lonely um, Planet Guide, which put I the intention I bought the Lonely there. Planet Guide, which was about 12 pages. Cause yeah. <laughs> yeah. and then I didn't, really, I didn't want to go on a cruise just around to the South Georgia Islands I wanted to go to the South Pole yeah so um we got as close as we could with without being actual explorers and training for that so we um booked a place on an I, Russian icebreaker which was mapping the coastline which sold uh pl- places at great expense to um anyone who thought they could be I mean you had to do a physical and stuff like yeah, but it was it was much older people who came with us because obviously they were much wealthier. But we remortgaged the house. To do it. Did you? <laughs> we bought wow. a flat, so we remortgaged it and released some money. Um, I was editing a magazine called B Magazine at the time, yeah. and my amazing boss was Australian. And Australians are pretty much travel. They think travel yes. talks comes above everything. It just he it was a, it was a no brainer for him. He said, "Of course, you should go and do Amazing. that." Amazing. And um, my brilliant deputy, who's one of my best friends, said, "I don't worry. It will all be fine. We'll back up." And also, we would be uncontactable because there were no mobile phones then. So it wasn't yeah. as if I could ring in and check. Or it was, you know, we were totally gone when we. It were was gone. back in the day when, when you weren't in the office, you couldn't work. That was it. You couldn't yeah. sit, speak to anyone. You wouldn't be able to speak to family or anything because there are there were no. It was only satellite phones. So yeah. um, and obviously we we're on a ship, so there was no Wi-Fi in those days. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. And we just we got the gear. We did some training, and uh, we just went for six weeks. It was extraordinary. And when and like, how did you book the place? I think you said that you were there were only like two spaces left. Like, was that also yeah? Kind we, of part again, of... it was a really weird sliding doors um, moment. The, the ship I really wanted to go. So, so very few. You have to really plan when you go to Antarctica, especially at that time. If when the when it's their summer, uh, where the ice is melting. So how close you can get so it's all very last minute are there going to be spaces or not how many people can get on it and it went to something place called St Peter's Island which is there's a group a very underground group of people who collect islands as travellers and they collect really really remote islands that only um if this boat could get to St Peter's Island it was a rare once in 10 year really um, climate that yeah. would allow that to occur um, and as soon as I knew it was going there, I thought this will be the boat that gets closest to the coastline. Then um, I'm so going on it. We wanted to go on that <laughs> boat, and so and two places just came up. Some people cancelled. It was just extraordinary. Wow. And I was like, right, okay, take our money. We're coming. That's you know, that was it. And again, the fate of it. You know, we could have not been able to get anywhere near the coast because of the weather but the yeah. weather was with us it's 24 hour sunshine in antarctica and we landed on a bay that no humans had ever really? been to and they na- they mapped it um for geological purposes and they named it after the captain of our boat really i mean mm. what i mean you definitely go big or go home with everything that you do in life i, it seems. I just think if you want to do something what's what to pick yeah. the biggest Pick the biggest thing. And I guess, what was the biggest thing you took from that experience? Was there anyone that made like a really big significant impact on your life? I mean, obviously you say you love explorers now, but do you ever think about like, what would have been different if you hadn't have had that experience? Because this is like a really like, as you say, once in a lifetime thing to do. 
It's very cold in Antarctica. Yeah. I did learn that really cold. Even when you breathe in, your breath freezes as you oh breathe in. Oh, my gosh. Just, I think what I learned from that experience is that you have to be a very flexible and adaptable in life while still just being yourself mm-hmm. because it was a, you know, it's a Russian crew. They were quite serious. It was, um, you know, it wasn't luxury. <laughs> we had to mm-hmm. use a seat yeah. belt to strap ourselves into our bed at night. Oh, my God. Um, and flat bottom boats cause incredible seasickness because they don't. Oh, I can only imagine. You know, it's a sort of, so there was, I, I was sick for quite a lot of it <laughs> um, until I acclimatised to that. I think I learned that you can just deal with adversity and you just mm-hmm. can't moan about stuff or you just take every, you, if when you're going to go big on something, in order to get to that place, you have to get all the tiny little details, right? Yeah. So you have to sort of just take the next 15 minutes and the next 15 minutes. And in that time, lots of stuff gets thrown at you. And I think that's probably learned that, you know, we had to deal with what was thrown at us on mm-hmm. that trip, really, yeah. um, and just sort of navigate our way around it. And I did think, you know, if we can survive that together, we can probably survive anything. You know, well, yeah. Anything, and, really. and I guess as well, it's, it's also... A really nice thing to hear because you've been a very, you know, determined, you knew what you wanted to do in your career, you were on a career path. And I think we often sometimes find it hard to take experiences or take time out, but actually yeah. that can that is what can make you go. And you're lucky that you had a boss that let you, but you know, you also yeah. had to kind of let go for a little bit of time and go and do something out of the ordinary. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the thing you have to, it's like going on maternity leave when Mm-hmm. you're editing a big magazine you do have to be able to delegate and think well you have to be able to really trust the people around you and I've been yeah. so so fortunate to trust the people around me and be able to rely on them as, a, as humans to to know that they have my back and yeah. I think I think I'm probably quite a good judge of who's going to be able to do that and who's not going to be able to do that. And even, you know, people who aren't, haven't got your back, it doesn't necessarily mean you don't work with them or you don't need it from everybody, but you need a few pivotal people you trust a hundred percent. And I've had really great women around me. And I think Mm -hmm. that's the other thing about being a boss, the women under you, the younger women coming through, I have learned more from them than I have the older, more experienced women in my life. Such a great point. You know, a new generation has a totally different view and take on things. And, you know, I learned a lot from Hannah, who I work with. I learned a lot from all my assistants. And I learned a lot from kind of the very young women coming into the industry and women in the fashion industry. And I think that's, you know, never always look around you, never just assume that people more experienced more know more. And, you know, you've got to work with the people that click with who you are because I can't assume that I was always an easy person to work with because when mm-hmm. you have an enormous amount of energy and drive that's pretty irritating for a lot of people I think mm-hmm. sometimes and it's and other people don't have it and not everyone should there's nothing wrong if you don't so it's you've got to get the people around you who can deal with that definitely and it's such a great message because you've been in so many of these brilliant situations where you've been on a boat with you know fishermen and you know we often don't think we can relate to people but actually you can take something from everybody you just got to be open to it um I mean, you've made me literally now want to go and book some form of amazing, crazy <laughs> life experience with everything that you said. So before we let you go, so looking on kind of reflect on all the moments and decisions that we've spoken about, um, which one kind of really stands out to you as the most important? If that really hadn't have happened, your life today would be just totally different. I think actually probably the swim. Yeah. Because from it... I have been able to, I was able to, I had unraveled in midlife and I was able to pull all the threads back together because I met so many women going through the same 
thing. And I think if I hadn't done the swim, I wouldn't, we wouldn't have started the podcast. We wouldn't have looked at all the, we wouldn't have looked at this aspect of life and taken a moment. And I think I would have wasted years not being quite right and not feeling brilliant and not being positive as you can be. And I think you need to do something at the second stage of your life that is as much of an adventure as when you're 19 or 20, all of life is an adventure, it all stands. But when you get to 40, you really start to look at the timing of everything. And mm. to ha- to do an adventure at that point, I think it's kind of extraordinary. It resets your mind. I think that was probably the most pivotal life-changing moment for me. Well, we're so glad that you did it because without the book, you wouldn't have Thank the book, you. you wouldn't have the podcast and it's such an inspiration. It's been such a pleasure to chat to you and I still can't believe you've done all of this and you ha- we haven't even spoken about the fact that you have four children. Um, but Lorraine, <laughs> thank you so much. Massive, massive thank good you. luck with the book Thanks, launch. Julie. Can't wait to read it. Um, and thank you so much for being on Sliding Doors. Thank you. Thanks, Lorraine. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sliding Doors. If you've enjoyed our chat and found it inspiring, I would love it if you could rate, review, share and subscribe. Thank you so much. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.